Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Watch Party Gaming. This is your host, Javon, and I am joined today once again by my panel. Say hello, panel. Hello, hello. panel. For today's episode, we have Ruark. Hello. And Madeline. Hi. Greg. Hello, there. And DW. Greetings and well met. So today we are looking at episode three, uh, titled I Know Where I'm Going, featuring the minisode The Resurrectionist. And now I know what a minisode is. So <laughs> <laughs> It is a sode that is mini. So we start off the episode with a shot of Gabriel looking out the window, and he's drinking out of one of Aziraphale's angel wing mugs. I assume that Aziraphale has like a whole cupboard full of these things. <laughs> and it's and it's got Jim's mug printed on the side. Which I get the feeling Aziraphale also has a label maker. <laughs> yeah. Aziraphale is one of those cricket. Yes. 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 Those, those, I don't know what they're called, but like cricket girls or something. They're big in Utah, right? Like. <laughs> oh, they're everywhere. They're printing out his own coffee mugs, printing out his own t-shirts. Oh, absolutely. He's, He's oh, got yeah. the coffee mug press. He's got, yeah, he's got all of it. Probably it, it, all the glittery. You, you know he's got a t-shirt that he sleeps in at night with a picture of Crowley's face on it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Crowley's face is on the inside. <laughs> Next to his heart. Exactly. Oh, yes. that's so sweet. Yeah, also, you notice the very quick shot, you can see Jim's hot chocolate. On the tin. Yeah, he's he's really he's, everything is labeled. Leaned the hot chocolate. Hot he's chocolate. really running with that. Maybe <laughs> maybe Jim is the the cricket girl. Yeah, well, I don't know that Jim knows how to use a cricket. At this point, I would not presume that Jim could could function one. Uh, but probably. you know, if you got him involved in something like that, it would keep him from rearranging your books. True. Yeah. I was going to say, if, if if you showed him how to use it, he would dive headfirst into that. Uh, oh, like, yeah. he's got nothing else going on in his life. So, yeah. I, I missed that episode, but I do have to say that alphabetical ordering system hurt my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were not alone in that. <laughs> I do feel like if Jim was using cricket, though, that every once in a while his eyes would go blue and some monstrously predictive cricket cut would come out that people would have to study for years to know what it meant. <laughs> like the, the modern Agnes Nutter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey. Yeah. That, actually, you know what? That's something I hadn't thought of. Gabriel is the Agnes Nutter in this season. That's just true. Coming out with the prophecies that nobody can understand. <laughs> well spotted there, sir. You know, that actually brings something up. Why are prophecies always so difficult to figure out until after the fact? It, it seems It seems worthless. Okay, in Agnes Nutter's case, she doesn't. She does not know what she's describing. Like she sees something. Yeah, but, but I'm saying wherever that prophecy came from, why aren't they more specific? Why can't they just say this person will die on this date at at this time, rather than like, oh, a flaming wing of a blah blah blah, and then the the arc of the sky, and you're supposed to figure that out. I don't say this. I don't say this tongue in cheek. Although it will be funny, but it's because it's ineffable. When you get an image or a vision. <laughs> It's you don't understand it. You, you don't just understand have to describe it. Describe what you see. I, I'm starting to think that the ineffable is a very bad term for this because it seems like everything that's in, ineffable is actually just effed up beyond compare. True. Yep. Pretty much. True. 
<laughs> so it's you, have, you have identified the theme yes. <laughs> of the entire series. It's ineffable because it was already effed. It could no longer you be. You cannot F it more. <laughs> yes. Oh, it, 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 it's ineffable because it's already so effed that you can't F it anymore. Okay, I, like I can that. I can get I on like board that. with that. I mean, only one hole, apparently. Well, this one's off to a rollicking start. <laughs> that did not take long. <laughs> That's my spouse, people. Moving right along. <laughs> We're only in the first 20 seconds. Jeez. I know. <laughs> haven't even got out of the first scene. <laughs> so moving right along. <laughs> Let's see how we can destroy the next scene. Yeah. Yeah. A challenge, as it were. Um, and we go to the coffee shop across the street where uh, Nina is making coffee, and she is not having a good day. No. Her phone keeps going off, and one of her customers knows her well enough to know her partner's name. She directly refers to Lindsay, and um, is like, stop answering your phone. Stop reading your phone. Stop reading your texts. That's something, actually, I've heard many times before especially from the service industry of when like this theory of why things made from home with love tastes so much better than anything anybody can make in a restaurant where you're often dealing with people who are not happy to be at work and not. So if she has this coffee shop where she's, you know, all about serving everybody and loves what she's putting everything into it, that's all going to taste better. And they can taste the difference when her partner's mad at her and she's going through all that drama. It comes through in the coffee. And also coffee that somebody smiles at you and they hand it to you is just a more enjoyable experience. I don't really care if the person handing me my coffee smiles at me. They just better give me the fucking coffee. <laughs> yeah. So so I have, have, like, not so much now, but before the plague, um, I had, you know, regular bars where I would go for a pint. And my favorite ones were always the ones where you had the same servers for years and years and years because they obviously liked their job they or they wouldn't still be there you know they didn't have a, a high staff turnover and you know that kind of um congenial environment is contagious true it makes it just a more pleasant place to hang out this is this is true i mean you go to any place regularly that you've got your favorite server and your favorite bartender and things like that yeah, it, it makes the entire experience better if you see somebody and they don't that hate their life seeing, yeah, <laughs> yeah that enjoys what they're doing so the um customer is the first one who spots muriel on the other side of the street trotting <laughs> along in her bright white constable i blend bobby <laughs> <laughs> yeah. line. someone's got a sense of humor or an interesting kink either way puts a smile on my face <laughs> This entire scene is fucking comedy gold. Zerfil, <laughs> you just, he opens the door and he looks at her for a couple of minutes and then kind of goes, hello, officer. <laughs> like, he's just like, you know what? I'm just going to roll with this. <laughs> yeah, you can see that whole inner conversation go on of how am I going to handle? Okay, let's just, you know what? Let's, let's see where this goes. <laughs> and, and his He's so indulgent. He's <laughs> just kind of like, you know, shows her how to drink the tea. <laughs> well, like not 
not necessarily getting her to make a noose, but that whole, how much rope would you like? I will give you as much as you like. Go ahead and weave whatever you're going to weave. I will keep feeding you rope. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because this is one of the first times that we see a case where a Zerophil is really more, um, is less fish out of water in a lot of ways. Even the other angels are, you know, even when they are fish out of water, they don't know it. Right. Very much, you know, they 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 have that overconfidence, um, <laughs> born of privilege. But in this case, Muriel has absolutely no clue, and she's pretty aware that she has no clue. And it's fun to watch Azurafel be get to be the indulgent, uh, you know, sort of elder sibling kind of personality here. Yep, I I agree. There's also a beauty of watching her have fun. Oh, she's so enthusiastic. She's so into it. It's I, I would compare it to sometimes when you get somebody who's acting or, or just playing in an RPG or something for the first time, and they're getting to play that character. Oh, this is my character. <laughs> it's like a puppy with a new toy. Uh-huh. It's a, is it her first time on Earth, do you think? Oh, yeah. At least first time, I think, uh, <laughs> as a character. She's so delighted. <laughs> She may have she may have visited as an angel and been like, this looks cool, but I don't think she's tried to blend in before. I yeah. don't think she would ever have gotten to visit as an angel. I don't think she's got enough clout. Yeah. Yeah. I don't she's... imagine angels get vacation where they can like just pop off to Earth for, you know, a weekend or something. Yeah. It's usually a working thing. So then Crowley comes in. And that's even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> who's this and he sits next to Azurafel and just grins at her and he's just all teeth <laughs> his entire head turns we have to be teeth. careful for people who have not watched the episode that did not actually happen because we do have to worry that, that they would animate him into turning into all teeth that is something that Crowley would do <laughs> well, we know he can yeah. yes. <laughs> I liked metaphor. how I liked how very boyfriendy that that uh, was the way he sat down next to Zerophel. That's the oh, yeah. first time I've seen Crowley really act like a partner, like, you know, like a romantic partner to Zerophel in front of somebody else. You know, we see them, in his lap. Yep. We see them fight like an old married couple, but we have not really seen them express that kind of uh, closeness in front of anybody else. Mm-hmm. Good observation, yeah. Yeah, I I also love the line where you know the human co- the human police officer has just dropped in for a look at a cup of tea. <laughs> 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 well, we're also getting how well Azarafel and Crowley can communicate, not exactly subverbally, but how they can use their words to communicate things that are not what they're saying really well with each other. Mm-hmm. They play off each other. I mean, they, the two actors play off each other really well, but it's beautiful to see that that's also written into their characters, that their characters are supposed to be able to just interweave their conversation, have a conversation within a conversation that's saying what they're thinking that only their partner would pick up on. Well, they're, it's really easy for them, too, because uh, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but those two actors are actually married in real life. <laughs> I have gotten that impression. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly, Georgia Tennant <laughs> has has propagated that theory. The doctor's wife slash daughter is actually in a thruple. 
<laughs> yes. Okay. I, I actually saw a tweet from David Tennant where he referred to Michael Sheen as his work wife. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now we just have to get Michael Sheen as the doctor, and then... The circle will be complete. Yes. And then I can expand on my on my <laughs> list of who was in that scene. Your list of 12 people that were in a three-person scene? Yep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> can I just say that from now on, for the rest of my life, I'm going to introduce myself as a human? Because <laughs> you know, I loved that. I am a human police officer. I am a human bank customer. <laughs> I've been using human as a pejorative for years. Yeah. Crowley drags um, Aziraphale off to a private room where they can talk, not in front of their, their human police officer. And Crowley says, how are you people in charge? And was like, oh, is that what you think is happening? Well, the, the beauty of the fact that she wants to go with them and their description is just, oh, well, we'll tell you what we talked about afterwards. Oh, okay. Goes back to staring at cup of tea. <laughs> Azurfal gets in the Bentley, tells the Bentley we're going to Edinburgh. I once again, the Bentley is a actual character in the story. And um we jump to a very quick scene where uh, and then we get to the credits. We also do get to see that at least at first he drives exactly like Crowley. <laughs> With Swerving absolutely around no regard for out. anybody else in the road, yeah. I really feel like the car kind of drives itself, and I feel like he first got in and the car was driving the way it normally drives with Crowley, and I think by the time they got halfway through the trip, the car had realized, I need to drive in a different fashion for this person, and, and had slowed way, 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 way down. Yeah. I get the feeling in that first scene when it took off that Aziraphale was probably inside like, oh, dearie me. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen that, though. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen, like, just a, an expression of, of uh, Aziraphale in the window, like, no! <laughs> that would have been a beautiful, like, end credits. <laughs> like, those old, like those old Garfield window hangers. Exactly! <laughs> Suction cups on his hands. <laughs> Zeraphil is just an ornament in that car. So now when Crowley gets his car back, he's going to have to retrain it to go fast, and he's going to be really pissed off. He needs a little triangle in the back that says Angel on board. <laughs> Actually, that brings up something that I have been noticing. Listen to the way that Crowley says Angel when he calls Aziraphale Angel. He's not saying Angel like... You, that's your, your, you know, like Mr. Yeah, he's saying angel like it's a, a pet name. He's saying angel Absolutely. like, oh, my little angel. Like, like okay. listen to the way he says it. It is uh -huh. definitely a pet name and not an address of you are an angel. That is that is absolutely a, a choice by David Tennant and how he says yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's changed over time. I think the first few times we hear him say it, it sounds almost like a curse. Yeah. And yeah. it has definitely, you know, changed that. Maybe his triangle needs to say, you know, protected by my guardian angel. Oh, <laughs> I along those lines, there's part of me that wants to hear him call one of the actual angels angels now angel now 
so that we could hear that difference. Hear the difference. The still, yeah. the disgust for Angel. 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 <laughs> right. He's softening toward Gabriel, so it would have to be like Michael or somebody from from upstairs. I think Muriel would be uh, one that he would use. Yeah. I, I think with Muriel, he realizes that this, this angel is not a threat. <laughs> Still an angel. I don't think Crowley has it in him to be mean to Muriel. Not really mean. <laughs> I don't think anybody has it in them to be mean to Muriel. She's like a puppy. Muriel is like some very low-level, you know, office clerical. Yeah, yeah, she's a low-level clerical worker. Why would they pick her for an Earth mission? And I wonder if it's because she's disposable and they think that Azurfell and Crowley are dangerous. She's like Eric of upstairs. Yeah. So someone that if something happens to her, nobody cares. We'll just send another minion. But it might she... also be because she found the matchbook. They may have yeah. some kind of matchbox rather. They may have some kind of like, you know, uh, incident command thing where the first person on the scene gets to take the <laughs> take the, take the lead. <laughs> or, or they don't want to widen the circle. Yeah, that also could be it. It's like if she's on Earth, she's not gossiping around the water cooler about the thing that happened in heaven. Right. I I also have a, this is more not based on the story itself so far, but on tropes. There's part of me that wants to see her fall into the, the character that often has some amazing ability. And that's the reason where they're at, where they, they, they're innocent in all these other ways, but then like their, their miracles, like they're just natural with their miracles kind of thing, or some, some aspect of her character that's going to be like, oh, Muriel's a badass, <laughs> but in that just in that innocent way. I like that character archetype, and I think it would be beautiful to put on Muriel. There's also the possibility that Michael doesn't know what she's doing or is trying to run heaven very differently than Gabriel. And, you know, maybe maybe Michael's like got this like send send newbies out. Let's see what, you know, beam down the red shirts. Maybe she was just the person in the room. We need to send somebody. You go. I, I think another thing that might be going on here is these angels have had these roles for for eternity, essentially. None of them have really, you know, there, there's no promotion. There's no demotion. There's just angels in their positions. So. Suddenly, these angels are all getting promotions. You know, suddenly Michael has to fill in for Gabriel, and like, holy crap, I've been Michael for eternity. Now I have to be Gabriel? What the hell? You know, is Muriel the new Michael? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I mean, all of a sudden, all of these people that never thought they'd be promoted are getting promoted. And of course, they're going to be like, I don't know what's going on. Right after the credits, uh, we enter the Minnesota where it is 1827. And Crowley has invited Azurfell to Edinburgh. You start off with a shot of Edinburgh Castle, and apparently um, they just stuck Edinburgh Castle in as many shots as they could, even in places where it, you wouldn't actually have been able to see it. Yeah, I noticed, <laughs> yeah. I noticed that in the x-ray. The, uh, the director was Scottish and wanted to get this as Scottish as possible. So Edinburgh Castle is everywhere. You could hear Tennant lean in on his accent. It was beautiful. That's also in the x-rays where it says that, you know, David Tennant was told he could use a Scottish accent, so he used all of them. <laughs> we start off in the graveyard, and um, we have that little discussion around the Gabriel statue. So one assumes Gabriel has been coming to Earth and modeling for statues. And that's how they meet Elsbeth, who is a grave robber. I don't know if Resurrectionist is the name for the grave robber 
or the person who chopped up the bodies afterwards. A lot of times they were the one and the same. Yeah. It's pronounced Frankenstein. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going with that. <laughs> I ain't got nobody. Abby something. Abby, Abby, Abby normal. <laughs> what? Frau Blucher. <laughs> this is Thanks. a whole different podcast, y'all. <laughs> anyway, back to Good Omens. So Aziraphale immediately jumps into what you're doing is wrong. This is wicked. I must, I must convert this, you know, young woman back to the the path of righteousness. Crowley's just like, this is great. <laughs> and he's just, he, he says, you know, a nice fresh body with such relish. <laughs> <laughs> you say potato, I say excellent. I, I didn't see him have yes. relish. There's, there's an entire conversation where Crowley basically says you can't expect someone who is born into poverty to be good the same way you expect someone who is born in a castle. That is lifted straight out of the book. They have that conversation where Zerfel says, but if they're poor, they have more opportunity to do good. And Crowley's like, that's ridiculous. That's lunacy. This is such a great example of essentially 18th century uh, philosophical conversation, John Mill or whatever, you know, like this sort of theoretical conversations that these philosophers would have with each other via these little, you know, slim monograph books that they would challenge each other's opinions on. And that was just sort of fascinating to me. Yeah, I'm sure that was that was fully intentional. It, it really comes through. It's it's that that argument boiled down into a, an example of real world versus theoretical. And I think it's really brought home by all these suggestions that Zerafel has about you know, well, why don't you just take up weaving? Yeah, with the loom I don't have, or farming with the farm I don't have. Well, that's where she left her loom. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting now because, you know, we are going through this massive homelessness problem. I don't know about where you live, but in Toronto, the number of homeless people has just absolutely skyrocketed. We have people living in tents and parks. And you have all these people saying, well, why don't you just do X and Y and Z? I would, you know, save up my money in the bank account that I can't open because I don't have an address, you know, or you know, hide my money in the tent that the cops will, like, throw in the dumpster every couple of weeks. Like, it, yeah, you or know, shower it, for that interview in the house I don't have. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're still hearing this exact conversation today. Why don't they just do X? Why don't they just do Y? Yeah. Because well, yeah. there are certain aspects of uh, society that decide to go backwards. Why don't you just inherit money from your parents? <laughs> and, right. and how often is that the case of the person who's making the statement? Is like they're living off inheritance going, well, why don't you just do this? Because we didn't all have the opportunity you had to have older people that had money die. Right. Use the baseball metaphor. We were born on third base. We're still at bat with, you know, full count. Well, I love seeing them have this conversation once again. You know, as the anarchists would have it, it's the it's the the demons who have the right idea here. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and heaven is just so blinded by the light that they just can't even see what's right in front of them. They're wrapped up like a douche.
It's revved up like a deuce. Revved up. I don't believe like a deuce. that. <laughs> I have listened to that song so many times. I don't care what they write down or the lyrics. <laughs> so then we jump back to present day, and Azurafel is having a pleasant 30 mile per hour drive through the countryside playing classical music that stays as classical music. Now, would that be kilometers, though? England's a weird mix. So Crowley breaks in through the radio because apparently he can also do the hell thing where he talks to people through electronics and starts shouting at Aziraphale for driving too slow and having sweets in the car. And ultimately, we find out that he's turned the car yellow because it's pretty. Because he can feel it. I love that he can feel it. <laughs> He's very closely connected to that car. I, I would like to revisit something you just said there. The hell thing about talking to other people through electronics. Just that statement on its own just kind of <laughs> stands. That's what we're doing right now. What does that say? Nothing good. No, not at all. <laughs> I, I am a firm believer that the internet came from hell. I got no problem with anything. Yeah. <laughs> it suggests it, well, that. not necessarily the internet, but definitely social media. Social media oh, yes. is internet. It's, I, I, I try, put it all, put it all on there. Al Gore is actually a demon. <laughs> <laughs> Man, bear, pig is just one of his minions. And like Crowley is actually trying to do. Good <laughs> oh, please let them write him into season three. So Crowley threatens to sell Azurfell's books, which is you know the ultimate threat. And so Azurfell changes the Bentley back to black and hits the accelerator and drives around this curve where I assume they're now uh, traveling into Scotland. And there's this weird cartoon scene where all the hills are tartan and he passes a body of water with like Loch Ness, Loch Ness monster sticking its head out. And it's just such a weird scene to drop into the middle of an episode. I've never seen them, like, obviously the the credits are done cartoon style, but I've never seen them actually do it in the middle of an episode before. I felt it it was very much a reference to driving by map. Um, Like when when you have Indiana Jones and suddenly the plane becomes the plane going across the map kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, driving by map. Yeah. Oh, maybe. But yeah. I, and that does, it did kind of have the appearance of one of those like cartoonish maps that you get in a, a, a luxury resort or something, you know? Yeah. The other thing I noticed is as he drove away, the wheels held out on changing color. Yes. The car goes black and the wheels are like, no. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the Bentley doesn't like being so bad all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it, it might have made a nice change. <laughs> I think the Bentley likes both of its parents. Uh, maybe. Yeah. But there is something in X-Ray that uh, says this moment is an homage to a film called I Know Where I'm Going. The Tartan Hills featured in that film. Uh, Big Hill, <laughs> The Big Hills are dressed in the official Good Omens Tartan. That there is some marketing. And... <laughs> Uh, the red tartan featured is McKinnon tartan in reference to Douglas McKinnon, the director. We can also see uh, Alien Donnan Castle in the Loch Ness Monster. We might be heading for Scotland. There's an official Good Omens tartan. Yes, Azurafel's tartan was invented specifically for him. 
Okay. There's official tartans for all kinds of things. You can apply for an official tartan for pretty much anything. Yeah, the, like the city of Long Beach has its own tartan. It, it's not a difficult thing to to get, there's, honestly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a Ukrainian tartan. Yeah, like like. Uh, so it's like things. being a Scottish yeah. lord at this point. You kind of the yeah. paperwork. You yeah. send it off. Right. Yeah, you you fill out the paperwork for the the pattern on the tartan. You send it to the official tartan registry, and then and with a sample, and then you're in the official tartan registry. Yeah. There's probably like like people who help you develop your tartan. And I'm sure somebody is making a good deal of money off of I want to <laughs> get in on, on that. Good on them. I want to get in on that. I, I was wondering. Uh, yeah. So just to go back to the, to the scene, when I first saw it, I thought it looked very Monty Python. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Agreed. It's a very Terry Gilliam kind of transition. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, I mean, just like the opening credits, I've always thought were really Paying homage to Monty Python, very very similar kind of kind of style, yeah. So next we jump to Beelzebub's office. There's this whole conversation about the dung pits, which is not a mental image I ever wanted to have, but now I do. <laughs> like the bog of eternal stench. Well, that crap has yeah. to go somewhere. Crap rolls downhill, that... and well, can't get more downhill than hell. Yeah, I guess I guess they eat. Like, there was this comment earlier about Beelzebub put, put some of the la lesser demons on half rations, and then in series uh, in series one, there was that thing where Crowley said that he was complaining about the food in heaven. So I guess they have something that passes as food in heaven and hell. So if what goes in must come out. <laughs> Can I just tell y'all that the official tartan is called Heaven's Dress, and it's was specifically designed for Aziraphale specifically. Mm. Cool. Has has he worn it yet in this show? Mm -hmm. Well, his bow tie is always tartan. Oh, okay, okay, cool, cool. And there's that whole scene in when they do the body swap. Um, the back of Crowley's collar is normally red, but when they did the body swap, it was tartan. Oh, so. When they switch back, he you can see him kind of rub the back of his neck, and he goes, "Tartan, really?" <laughs> and Jeff says, "Tartan's fashionable." <laughs> or was at one point. Well, he's McFell. Yes, the McFell <laughs> tartan. <laughs> so going back to the scene where we're in Beelzebub's office, I find her behavior very out of character, and I'm kind of curious as to what that is going to lead to. Like she actually says to one of her minions, "Do you ever just wish that somebody would tell you you were doing a good job?" And that is. Not the Beelzebub that we know and fear. There's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah. Now, she loses her temper again almost immediately, which is much more in character for her. But I just thought it was like an interesting glimpse into something that's going to be going on in the future. Existential angst exists in hell. Perhaps existential angst originated in hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> so then we jump to the bookshop um, where Gabriel is trying to figure out why if you put a book in midair it doesn't stay there <laughs> he's like go a minute it goes down why gravity well, it keeps things where you leave it but it's not where i left it <laughs> i i loved that conversation with crowley it's like why and he's like i don't remember it seemed like a good idea when we were talking about it in the planning meetings and once again i feel like we're getting different flavors of neurodiversity with these characters yeah. <laughs> like all of these characters are neurodiverse in different ways yeah. One of the things that stood out for me is that you jump from a scene with Beelzebub where she's surrounded by her usual halo of flies to the bookshop 
and there's a fly in the bookshop. There has been a fly in every episode so far. So I think that's a very broad hint that Beelzebub is watching what's going on. And maybe that's why Hell is so convinced that Gabriel is in the bookshop, even though they don't recognize who Jim is. Well, you have to figure that they're watching Crowley. I mean, they, 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 they don't seem the type to just, oh, let him report back at his own leisure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's Shax. That's, that's her job. Is Shax the fly? That would be too much, because I've already complained about the fact that Shax is entirely too much like Rita Skeeter. <laughs> and if, if Shax was also turning into a fly, I mean, I think that would, honestly would be a, a, just a step too far for this show to do that. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, but but plus we don't really associate we associate flies with Beelzebub specifically, yes. not anybody yeah. else. Speaking of, do we know what Shax's animal is? We do not. Oh, do all the demons have an animal? Yes, yes, all the demons have an animal aspect. Crowley's a snake. Obviously. Beelzebub's a fly. Um, Haster's some toad thing. I never picked up on that. Obviously, this is something from season one that I missed. The conversation. Liger had a, a chameleon. Yeah. That's right. Wow. Do all the angels have animals? They do not. They have gold somewhere on their body. That's true. They might have a song. That's their thing. It's a choir of angels. It's all songs from Sounds of Angel- Sounds of Music. There's like, you know, <laughs> seven million night. songs from Sounds of Music, Sound of Music that we've never heard. <laughs> One for each angel. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh! And somebody's a little goaded and they're not happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) I am already beyond pissed off about the musical episode of Star Trek without you bringing musicals back. I I am so. Saying you would not approve of a musical Good Omens episode? No. Actually, in Good Omens is one of the few places it might work, but even then, no, I hate musicals. No. All right, so we're going to have to secretly renumber the episodes when that episode comes out so that we won't do the episode with Ruark here. We won't tell Ruark there is an episode. Madeline's on you to fast forward through that one. There was no episode this week. Ah. Oh, Madeline's not going to want to watch it either. No, I won't. (laughs) To go back to the fly thing, I now feel like I should go back and rewatch all of the scenes that just take place in the bookshop and figure out what they said, because if there's a fly in the room, one assumes that Beelzebub knows what the, the contents of the conversation. So to figure out what hell knows, they know everything that happened in the bookshop. How far ahead are we getting here? Because I know we've, we've all watched everything at this point and we've okay. not all watched everything at this point. Okay. I have, I have only watched, uh, I've, I've only been watching the episodes before the podcast, so I don't know what happens in the yeah, future. You, you clearly have knowledge ahead of us, Greg. Yes, I do. You future person. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't here when that was established, so I just... No problem. You just get to be Ruark and chew your cheek. Okay. So, next scene. Uh, we are back in 1820-whatever-it-is, and they have uh, arrived at the home of Mr. Dalrymple. Um, somebody... Calls him doctor and he says, Mr. I'm not a doctor. I'm a surgeon. And then what's funny is then he turns around and says, Mr. Crowley. And, <laughs> and Crowley says, doctor. 
I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> Any chance to make him the doctor again? <laughs> <laughs> so Aziraphale spoils the body. Elspeth leaves and Aziraphale gets Crowley to help him talk to Mr. Dalrymple and try and convince him that what he's doing is wrong and he should stop. And Crowley, like, just rolls with that. He's like, oh, okay, I'll freeze him so that, you know, you can tell him to invite us to to sit and have a drink with him and, and talk about his work. I got the feeling, like, Crowley knows how this is going to pan out and knows that it's not as as black and white, cut and dry as Zerfeld wants it to be. And so he's like, yeah, sure, go ahead and talk to him. Let's find out exactly how complicated this whole thing is. Sure, sure, yeah, this is great. That's true. It's a moral argument that when it bumps up against reality, the gray is revealed. The amount of just sheer meanness in Aziraphale in this scene really made me, in this whole minisode, made me really uncomfortable, honestly. Aziraphale is like really, really terrible here. Well, especially the, I'm going to turn the thing she was going to make money off of into something she can't make any money off of, which would leave her poor. Like, yeah. You you literally just robbed the poor of a potential, you know, way out of being poor. She even told you exactly how she was planning on spending it. When he has a pocket full of money. Yeah. Like he could have bought it off of her, offered her more. Well, that ties in with the whole the poor have the opportunity to do the right thing. And so we can't deprive them of that opportunity. Because that's more important than whether or not she gets to eat today. So the prospect of... Elsbeth and um, Morag sleeping in an alleyway is not enough to change his mind, but a tumor in a little boy is. So you see him almost cradling the jar that has the tumor in it, and he's thinking about the fact that some kid died. And that makes it okay. Starving to death on the street, not yeah, a convincing well, argument. Well, I mean, the, 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 tumor, the tumor was not the fault of the, the innocent nine-year-old boy, but poverty is obviously a character flaw of the person who is experiencing the poverty, which is the exact argument we're having these days. There is another example to put forward on that of the tumor was finite. If you're, if you're hungry on the streets, there's still chance for things to change. There's still... Choices to be made. The tumor is a finite moment. That boy is dead. There's nothing more to be decided. There's nothing, you know, there, there's, there's no more story there. I do think that the closing line in this scene is really interesting. The um, Dalrymple says, I'll either end up with a knighthood or condemned as a resurrectionist. And um, we find out, you know, what actually happened to him later on. And it's his picture that's over the Resurrections well, pub. on one side. <laughs> on one side, yeah. That's Gabriel on the other, though, right? <laughs> uh, I assumed it was Jesus. Hang on. I thought I'm it was Jesus, too. It. I think it's supposed to be Jesus, but it looked an awful lot like the statue. So I'm oh. feeling like Gabriel's been hanging out going, yeah, I'm, I'm the holy guy. Oh. So obviously that brings us to the pub scene where... Um, Aziraphale goes in and says, I'm a human newspaper man. Muriel. Like, <laughs> he was mocking Muriel and then does this. The card and the hat band. He's having so much fun. <laughs> he is having so much fun. You must be one of those investigator types. Yes. 
This is very reminiscent of the scene in the church where he was being a double agent for MI5 and just having a whale of a time with it. This is like his favorite thing ever. Anytime he gets to play dress up, he's he's all about it. Earth is a f big fancy dress party. I want to see Azarafail go to a LARP. <laughs> he would have so much fun at a con. Oh, is a LARP? He could do some dance. <laughs> I was going to say, isn't Azarafail pretty much just living in a LARP all the time? But that's that's it's the game pretty within much. the game. <laughs> like, ah. <laughs> would he be even conscious of what's happening? I more so would love to see him try and put, I, I, I like that thought. I would love to see him try and put on a persona, putting on a persona. I am a human player. I will be playing an elf bard. <laughs> <laughs> so his sketch actually works. <laughs> the idea that he shows up with a sketch and not a photograph still absolutely floors me, but he shows it to the bartender and it works. I'm not sure why he doesn't immediately... Like, the guy says, oh, he was uh, here with the mason and there's a lodge right next door. I didn't. I don't know why he didn't immediately go to the mason's lodge and start talking to people there, but for whatever reason, well, he did not. the hanging out with masons explains the likeness in the, uh, in the statue. He's been hanging out with these masons for centuries, apparently, because this uh, old statue that's sitting in a graveyard in Edinburgh looks exactly like him. That's how that happened. I did not yeah, make that, that connection. I don't know why that completely yeah, that's, got that, by that, me. That was the first thing when he said Masons. It's like, oh, that explains the statue. Well, and not just hanging out with Masons. Hanging out with these specific Masons, because he's not spending all that much time, but he's going back to the same town and hanging out with these same Masons. Well, you know, when you find the right pub. <laughs> yeah. I, I am convinced that Mr. I Will Not Soil, the temple of my celestial body, is out having a, a a single malt on a saturday night as the well-known prophet jimmy buffett once said "Ooh, there's a thin line between saturday night and sunday morning <laughs> oh, prophet jimmy buffett <laughs> <laughs> hurt my soul. <laughs> that sketch is fantastic by the way it has this great smirk yeah, oh, it was it's, just it's like a perfect. Him. It's it a perfect sketch, done. but that smirk is just a little, a little exaggerated. It's like, yeah, that's Gabriel. Well, Zerfels had ages to work on art. You it's know, true. he's just sat there and drawn for hours at a time. So we jump back in time to uh, Zerfel telling Elspeth and Morag that he's okay now with body snatching. You get the Aziraphale seal of approval on your body snatching and selling bodies for money plan. And so he tails them to the graveyard. I'm not sure why Elsbeth still lets these guys hang around. Not like she can stop them. Yeah, I suppose. I'd be, I'd be trying to get away from the two of them. They're obviously trouble. But then more I get shot. Apparently these uh, guns that were set up around grave sites by people who didn't want their bodies vandalized was a real mm -hmm. historical thing. Well, I mean, the grave robbing was an actual thing of surgeons using the the bodies to learn anatomy. That was a real thing. Uh, with that last one, I don't think we need to use was. There are still funding that is not existing. I, I have heard stories and heard cases of uh classes and different places that have dealt in stolen body parts because they couldn't get their hands on ones through legal processes. There was a whole thing in 
uh, a whole like folklore in New Orleans about the needle men from Charity Hospital going around poking people with needles so that they could get bodies. And that would be a similar era to what's going on in the show. Yeah. Is that like the historical equivalent of waking up in the bathtub full of dry ice with like a brand new scar over your kidney <laughs> or what your kidney used to be? Samora gets shot. They hide in one of the tombs. And Zirfo goes through this thing where he's like, I'm going to save her. I'm going to save her. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to do it. But he dithers about it. And he takes too long, and Morak dies. It, that felt like he was trying to justify the fact that he was about to do something against the rules. But he waffled for so long that, you know, it was just too late. Yeah, moral absolutes, uh, you know, if if he if he really stuck to his convictions, he would have. But he knew that he would get in trouble for it. So it's like, your absolute's not so absolute anymore. So they bring Morag's body to Dalrymple, who's an absolute dick. Like, he, first of all, he underpays her for the body of her best friend, <laughs> no less. And then he says, what are you going to do? spend it on, gin? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's terrible. You know, he, he gave a good moral argument for the idea of body snatching, but uh, when it comes down to it, he's just being a cat. He makes the moral argument towards the two people that he sees as his equals. Elspeth is not his equal, right? Even though she's the one who's supplying him with the bodies, he looks down on her. We're seeing this uh, moral ambiguity of both good and bad from the same person. Right. There is no black and white. You know, he's he's awful and he's trying to help people. He's exploiting for a moral cause. Exploiting the living to help the living. So um, Elspeth steals the laudanum. And there's a little piece of trivia that says on the laudanum bottle, you can see the name CMOT Dibbler. Um, there is a, it was a character from Terry Pratchett's books. Cut me own throat, Dibbler. You can buy anything from Dibbler. <laughs> That's nice. I'll cut me own throat for you. He's, he specializes in rat meat hot dogs, but you can literally buy anything from him. <laughs> also known as hot dogs. So, uh, Crowley and Aziraphale go back to the tomb and find Elspeth there and discover her plan to drink the laudanum and kill herself because... You know, she's like, life is bullshit. My best friend just died. Crowley drinks the laudanum. And then we have this scene <laughs> where David Tennant gets to do anything he wants. <laughs> he gets to go full Tennant. I wonder if it was like the the uh, Aladdin script, which is like Robin Williams goes off. There's this just in the yeah. script. It just says, be Robin. <laughs> yeah. He's Crowley's off his tits. He's like... <laughs> changing size he's like his accent is all over the place <laughs> you have sinned very bigly <laughs> did y'all pick up on the alice in wonderlandness of this yes yes uh -huh. he's wearing he's you know he's he's mad as a hatter he's wearing a top hat and he is drunk something which makes him shrink and makes him grow like that had to be an alice in wonderland thing absolutely oh yeah little known fact lewis carroll was walking through that uh graveyard it's, it's off camera, inspired by this moment. 
And then even when he's the, it's just the two of them and he's back to his normal size is like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> oh, you know, he does it again. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I love that little bit where he's, he's, uh, when, he, when he's shrunk, he's like, I'm small, aren't I? <laughs> There's a little bit of a leprechaun-ness going on in there, and I realize we're in the wrong part of the, of the area. The aisles, still, yeah. I, I, I couldn't help wrong but think island. that there had to be a little bit of a, of a leprechaun reference. I, I kind of assume that that's what Elsbeth walked away with, because, you know, how else do you explain what you've just witnessed? Laudanum fumes. Laudanum does makes people do a lot of weird shit, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't do that. No, no, she got some of the laudanum fumes. She got hot box. Yes, yeah. Hot <laughs> she got laudanum box. She got tomb boxed. Hot tombed. Hot tomb. Uh, oh. Well, let's not, no, let's not no. give the internet that, that was phrase. That was distasteful. As do not Google that phrase. Do not Google hot tomb. <laughs> <laughs> oh no tomb.com is an available domain oh no <laughs> oh there's googling going on and i want no part of it <laughs> friends don't let friends click on ruark's links um <laughs> <laughs> oh there's a new tagline for the series there you go so um the last scene when uh, Azurfil and Crowley are walking away, Azurfil keeps going on about how Crowley did a good thing. And so every time he does this, Crowley says, shut up, <laughs> shut up, shut up, shut up. Don't say that out loud. Just as Azurfil is turning away, we see Crowley get sucked into the ground. So this happened in um, 1827, according to Azurfil's diary. And I went back to season one and looked up the scene in St. James Park, which because the, they're wearing the same clothes, which happened in 1862, so 35-ish years later. And that's the scene where Crowley asks for the holy water, you know, just in case things go sideways. And I'm convinced that he got sucked back down into hell, and he they punished him for what he had done. And that's why he came back and said, I need something to defend myself. Good catch. That hole does remind me, there was a beautiful moment when they were slipping into um, the, the, the first time and they're getting away from the watchers um, that I loved Crowley tries to help by creating that pit, but because he's not good at doing things to be helpful, he ends up sending them down like a bottomless pit. I may have overdone it a bit on the whole. <laughs> yeah. But I, I loved the idea that like he's not necessarily good at knowing what it is to do good, but still trying. It was it was interesting to see like a growth towards a good side. Well, you figure as a demon, if he dumps a couple of humans down a bottomless pit, the other demons are just gonna think it's funny. <laughs> but he makes it clear that that was not his intention. Because it's different if that was his intention. And he was just, yeah, let's drop them and, you know, send them directly to hell. I'll open up a pit all the way. But he's kind of like, I just meant to slow them down. And yeah, I may have overdone that. One of the things um, about this whole thing with, you know, Crowley actually, actually telling Elsbeth, go live a good life, which is something that as a demon he should never do. I read it not just that he's he's you know high but also that he's overconfident he's been getting away with being 
really bad at being a demon, doing blessings blessings for Xerophel, taking credit for things that he didn't actually do, like the Inquisition. And he's overconfident. So he's like thinking, oh, well, hell's not really checking up on me. And then because he gets high, he kind of oversteps and they catch on and now he's in trouble. And to add to that list, he also has been for so long trying to keep Azeraphael from doing something too bad. Like he'll let Azeraphael do little temptations. When Azeraphael goes to resurrect Weemarag, he stops him. I think there's a part of him that knows that that's going to be too much. And I don't want you to completely be destroyed. I just want to toy with you a little bit because it's fun. Interesting. First little step toward falling in love. Oh, that ship sailed for Crowley a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of the plaything will be taken away, I think, too. Um, I was just wondering about the name Wee Morag, and I looked it up. And uh, Morag is a common name in Scottish that people roughly translate to Sarah, but it's also the name of a monster reported to inhabit Loch Morar, which we saw a monster in the oh. lake at oh. the beginning of the episode. So that's the big version, but she's the wee one. <laughs> the little monster in the lake. Because it's always wee Morag. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Like, it's not even a descriptor. It's like it's part of her name. Yeah, like Lil Yachty or something like that. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> little Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Except she doesn't seem particularly little. She's just a normal-sized human. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but compared to the monster in the la- in the lock, yeah, she's she's the wee version. Yeah, uh, there may have been a big morag too who lived in the village or her mother. Yeah, that's that's true. Having the more comfy spot in that alleyway. <laughs> that, that's true. I mean, uh, I, I there's two friends that had the same name, and we had two, uh, two friends that had the same name. One was a little short, one was very tall, so it was you know big and little. So so we know who was ta- who was talking about who. Grand Marag's a beast of a woman. T. <laughs> oh, that's T. Marag, yeah. T. Marag. Mashalulu, T. Marag. It's not often the Cajun comes out, but there it is. Front and you center. Get, you get me with somebody else and it'll come out, yeah. <laughs> you did this to me, Madeline. You did this to me. <laughs> Mash your fault, babe. Madeline's going to explode. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so in the next scene, we pop back to present day. Azerfell um, is in the graveyard looking at the statue of Crow, of uh, sorry, of Gabriel. How much do you want to, how much would you put on it that John Hamm has that in his house? Oh, now? I would. <laughs> Backyard <laughs> on a fountain. You done with it? I would have that written into my contract. That comes home with me. Around yeah. a, a, a corner somewhere, so that you come primes suddenly and it scares the shit out of you every time. <laughs> I would put it like in the foyer, just right beyond the front doors. Like anybody coming into my house, just like oh, I'd put it in like the shower or something. So that, you know, like you go into the bathroom and there's like ah. <laughs> You just want to shower with John Hamm. Well, <laughs> <laughs> moving right along. Um, <laughs> Azur Azur is in the graveyard. He um, encounters some two men, some very colorful gentlemen, who are walking through the graveyard and approaches them to borrow their phone. This scene went way better than I thought it was going to go. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I gotta well, say. And it started to affect one of them earlier than it did the other. Yep. Because the one was still trying to start something, and the other's already getting out his phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the, I guess it's really hard to say no to an angel, one assumes. And, you know, you don't want to be smited. <laughs> Smoted. Smote. 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 I do like the fact that he doesn't even need to press a button. No, he just talks to the phone and tells it what he wants it to do, and it does it. Well, also, the guy has the need to be really, really honest with Aziraphale yeah. uh, about what he uses his phone for. Twitter and Grinder. Twitter um, and Grinder. Yeah. And Grinder, like right in front of his friend, like, you know, this, his friend does not know this about him. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they met on Grinder. I was, I was trying to read what the guy's tattoo was across his forehead because it was a word, but I couldn't get a shot where he was, he was standing still. I, I think it probably says poor impulse control. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think it says no regrets. No regrets. Yeah, no regrets. That's it. Okay, then. That is kind of fitting, though, when you think about it. <laughs> it is. It is. So Zerfeld calls Crowley to share, you know, he's discovered and blesses the guy's phone and <laughs> blesses his Twitter and his grinder, whatever those are. <laughs> So after Azerfell's chat with Crowley, uh, we continue on with the situation in the bookshop where um, Crowley spots Nina and Maggie talking together. And so he, he makes it rain. He's still going with the get humans wet plan. <laughs> the uh, uh, Richard Curtis plan. Yeah. It's foolproof. What could go wrong? <laughs> Saw it in a Richard Curtis film. So what I love about this scene is that you see Crowley kind of messing with the weather, trying to remember how how to control the rain and, and get them um, get get them to like hide under the the awning for shelter, and it starts working. And he smiles, and it's the most open, genuine smile you have seen on that face since their original meeting. You know, in in space, he's doing something; it's working, and he's so happy. <laughs> And it's for someone else. It's not for him. That's, yeah. I, th I was thinking of it, he's happy because he's doing something and he's enjoying it and it's fun, but also he's doing something nice for somebody else. I hadn't thought about that part. Yeah, it's like it's a brand new, well, not brand new. It's just been a long time since he has done anything for that. So it's his essential angel uh, aspect showing itself. Did anybody else have the feeling when Gabriel kind of like started to fade over? that there was going to be a torrential downpour about to happen. <laughs> of frogs or something. I thought he was going to once again amp the miracle and like be like, oh, the rain didn't work? Well, here, let me send a hurricane. Like, that should help. <laughs> like, yeah, no. like the, the, the tiny little miracle they performed to hide him was this giant thing, and it was just because of the presence of Michael, or, or sorry, the presence of Gabriel, or did Gabriel do something sort of unwittingly in that moment to amplify everything you know that it was the miracle so you know that they thought was so small so actually enormous or was was gabriel being there just a an amplifying factor so yeah i mean anytime anybody tries to perform a miracle in his presence it just gets blown up you know like he's an so when you were watching amplifier. this one did you have that same concern when you watched it yeah I was curious if I was the only one who, who felt that way. No, it's like, 
it, it, I mean, it, when when his eyes turn purple, it's like, okay, something's about to go down. His eyes didn't turn purple when they were doing the um, 25 Lazari miracle, though. This is, yeah, that was this unconscious. is true. So it's, yeah. It was either subconscious or just his presence was there or the tiny miracle they thought it was was actually gigantic. So Maybe a half demon, half half angel miracle is actually way more powerful than they realized. Wow. Oh, that's an interesting idea. When evil and good work together, it makes for like an uber miracle. Yeah. It's like a liger. I like that. <laughs> Half lion, half tiger, yes. It's pretty much my favorite. That's an animal. interesting theory. I like that. The idea that together they're stronger than anybody realizes. Yeah, the combined powers of heaven and hell. Makes sense. By our powers combined, we form Captain Planet. <laughs> Captain Crowley, he's our hero. Voltron Theory, that's a different podcast. Yeah. Oh, right. right. <laughs> this is Captain Planet Theory. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Which is different somehow. <laughs> it's um, in the fine details. <laughs> one's robots and one's annoying teenagers. We'll no, go with, both yeah. have annoying teenagers. Yeah, there's annoying teenagers in both of them. So, yeah. One of them has, like, people that are color-coded, like, blue and yellow and red and green and no, black. And the other one has... Happening. No, no, it's the oh, same. Right. Um, 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 there, there, is, there, there are differences, I swear. So, the, the thing that triggers Gabriel's eyes to turn purple is Crowley uses the word tempest. Gabriel kind of zones out and more prophecies start popping out of him. There will be a great tempest and, you know, the dead shall walk the earth, which is kind of an interesting statement given that, you know, we're the entire Minnesota was called res the resurrectionists. I think, I think this whole season is going to be centered around resurrection. And I mean, we've had too many references to resurrection to, I think for it to not be the whole season, not just the episode. But the so, whole. so zombies were, where we have Jane Austen, we have zombies. <laughs> Pride and prejudice and zombies. Yes. <laughs> That's what we're leading up to. I mean, we have Jesus. We have we have the reference to Lazari. Yep. But miracles know. are based on how many people you could raise from the dead. Oh, yeah. There's so many hints. Mm -hmm. Not just how many people, how many Lazaruses specifically, which, which brings into mind that obviously each person would require a different amount of miracle in order to bring them back to life. Yeah, is this based on whether they were good or bad? Is this based physically on like, like pure on physical size? Uh, what what what's age. this? What's, age might be yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Method of death. Method. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Method of death. Somebody okay. purated is probably harder to bring back from the dead than somebody who just you know choked on something. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say pureed? I said pureated, <laughs> but yes. Crap aid. With black and white and red all over. Oh, none in a blender. Yeah. <laughs> so what you're saying is a none in a blender is probably going to be more like a five Lazari. At least. As opposed At to least. just a, a Lazarus who's just laying there dead. You have to take dead. in her nunship. Was she a good nun? Was she a oh, bad oh, nun? Yeah. That all, all right. factors in. There's a chart. Wow. The, the, there's some complicated math involved in this. Definitely algebra. There's a sliding scale tool you have to use beforehand. <laughs> The calculus of Lazarus. 
I actually thought that the very beginning, very opening of this season was going to be something about angels dancing on the head of a pin. When I first saw Crowley out there, I thought we were going to see a pinhead. And I was disappointed when we didn't. So, uh, Mr. Gaiman, if you're listening, <laughs> we have a scene request. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was covered in season one. To be fair. Yes. Yes. So for our next scene, Shax shows up in the window. Um, Crowley goes running out to confront her, and she does this thing where she hops from body to body to threaten him. And ends facing the door. He's got the door open, but obviously the bookstore is warded against demons because she can't come in. Jim's right behind her. I'm oh, sorry, right behind him. He's right behind Crowley. And although, you know... With Pretty much any pronoun accounts when you're talking about Crowley. Um, and he's taunting her with the fact that, you know, oh, wish I could let you in, but I can't. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a vampire thing. You know, you can only come in if invited. And Crowley is the only demon who's ever been invited into that bookshop. The description of that scene has let me know what Shax's animal is. What's that? What's that? It's the meerkat. She pops up in the window. Hmm. She's got this Could big be. feather thing going on with her hat, though. I wonder if she's like some kind of bird. So the gigantic bow she's wearing also. It's like butterfly? Ostrich. That would fit yeah. with the theme. So what I thought was really funny was then she asked him how to fix the boiler in the apartment. I guess she inherited his old apartment. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the apartment comes with the job. She's like, so listen, when there's no hot water and there's two yellow lights in the boiler, what's that mean? <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, you have to fiddle the thing. That was my assumption when she said that he was getting bills. Like, she was had taken over his apartment, and he mm -hmm. was in the car with his plants. So, yeah, giving him all the mail. So, in the very closing scene, Crowley goes stomping up to Jim and starts to threaten him if... Because... Shax is saying that, the, that hell isn't coming after Crowley. They're coming after Aziraphale. So Crowley goes up to, to Jim and, and basically says, you know, if Aziraphale comes to harm because of all this, I'll, I'll, I'll. And then he stops and says, it's too late. What do you make of that? That he's already come to some harm because of all of this? Or also that he knows he's powerless. He doesn't have hell behind him. He can threaten all he wants, but there's nothing he could do to, to the combined forces of hell, or heaven for that matter, if anything happens to Aziraphale, because he really does care for him. My take on that scene was Crowley basically realizing that um, if Aziraphale is in trouble, it's Crowley's fault, because... Aziraphale started off as a good, loyal angel who believed in moral absolutes, and Crowley's the one who got him involved in the arrangement, um, got him questioning heaven's rules, mm -hmm. um, yep. and in the end was the one who convinced him to stop the apocalypse. So, well, the only reason Aziraphale's on the radar of uh, hell is because of Crowley. Yeah, and even just going back to the resurrectionists, it's, uh, you know, he, he introduced that moral absolutism, 
is not really absolute. So it started him asking questions, which is how how Crowley fell in the first place. Asking questions. I think this this that that very last scene was Crowley realizing his he's the person who kind of put Aziraphale on the firing line because he's not he's fallen out with heaven. He's not protected by heaven anymore. He's the only angel who's not protected by heaven anymore. I have to say one of the thing one thing about this episode and it's it's pretty much my same complaint about the previous episode. I really feel that for Xerophil's character arc, the historical pieces don't fit. I mean, by 1820-something, seems like very late in Xerophil's life on Earth to be figuring out shades of gray <laughs> in, mor- in, in morality. Like, he comes, he comes right out of the gate saying, oh, it's wicked and it's wrong. One assumes because it's illegal or because the church frowns on it, but that can't have been the first time in his work as an angel on earth that he's run into a situation where something is morally ambiguous. Yeah, that, that's true, because uh, one of the things that's sort of touched on in there is uh, it's a church teaching that, you know, the desecration of bodies is dissuaded because you're going to need that body when the resurrection happens, you know, when when the second coming happens. If you don't have a body, you're not going to, you know, rise from the deads, so to speak. So it's like he's falling back on a kind of a church teaching more so than what's actually coming from heaven. So it's sort of the word of man versus the word of God. And he even addresses that. Morag um, is saying to Elspeth that what she's doing wrong is because those poor people won't go to heaven now. And Zerfal goes, that's not actually how it works. <laughs> so he knows that there is no actual harm that's done. Right. The, the reasoning behind it is, is done. So, yeah, where, where is he getting that morality? That's a good point. It makes me wonder if much has humans ultimately create god does the church dictate heaven as opposed to heaven dictating the church kind of like a feedback loop (laughs) that kind of like like as you know as the humans um change and evolve christianity of course you know then which which form is the one that's actually informing heaven is another question but I mean, again, going back to the thing where that whole conversation feels like a philosophical uh, discussion, it's like Azurafel's kind of reflecting the conversation of the time in in churches. And so if if humans don't currently think, you know, at some point in, I don't know, 500 BC, let's say, humans don't think it's a problem to step on a grave, then, you know, or, or dig up a grave, let's say, then... Zerophil doesn't consider it bad. Heaven doesn't consider it bad. But now in 18, whatever, it, humans consider it bad. And so therefore, so does heaven and so does Zerophil. It sounds like that his moral absolutism is based on human moral relativism. So, so what, is, what is the wrong thing to do is the thing that is considered immoral or illegal 
in your culture. Well, I mean, think about how Azurafel felt about Adam and Eve. Like he was horrified by how they were being treated so much so that he gave them his, you know, he, he set down his flaming sword for them. And yet, how are they more um, wretched than Elspeth and Morag? You know, where, where, when did he become such a stick in the mud? Because he wasn't at one point and, and now he is other than that he's reflecting the mores of the, of the time and place that he is. But Crowley actually says at one point in the graveyard to Xerophel, it's different when it's someone you know, isn't it? And he knew Adam and Eve. And now he knows Elspeth and Morag, and so he cares about what happens to them. There's Victorian society had swarms of poor people, and he didn't know them. And he's not you know, running around trying to fix that situation. I also, not specifically to this situation, but I've noticed with uh, Azarephale, it seems that his his morals and his stance goes back in lockstep with heaven once he is away from Crowley. In the same way that somebody, when they, they you can get them away from the people that are influencing them a certain way, and you're like, no, no, see, that's not actually how it's being done. And they're like, oh, yeah, and then they go back to be with those same people, and they lock right back in with those people. So I think there's been a bit of like uh, almost a rubber banding effect where Crowley stretches him out of that norm, but then he goes right back to it when he's surrounded by people who all agree with that. And then it's just easier to stretch him each time. So he's in a cult is what you're saying. True. I I wasn't going to use the word, but yeah, yeah, I was using the phrasing. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, and the other thing is, uh, this is also sort of the rise of, at this point, you know, from the Enlightenment onward, uh, philosophical writings you know books about all this and what is he if not you know a purveyor of of books he's reading everything that comes out and that's got to influence his thinking as well so i think i think we have an episode there so um ruark take us out we want to say thank you as always to michael and jen out of the secret watch party island headquarters thank you michael and jen thank you michael, thank and, michael, jen. And, jen. Thank and, jen. michael and jen and if you want to find us online you can find us at game and watch party on all of the social medias and also look in the links on this episode because we have our discord server open yay for watch party gaming Starting with our next few episodes, we're going to put a link in that Discord server so you can watch along live as we record, and you'll get to see all the stuff that gets cut. Trust me, there's there's a lot of it. And the five takes it took to get that out. Wonderful yeah. pantomimes about John Ham on a Roomba. <laughs> We've never met a rail. We wouldn't happily sail off. <laughs> also, be sure to check out all of our other wonderful Watch Party podcasts, Watch Party Lord of the Rings, Watch Party Wheel of Time, and A Watch Party of Ice and Fire, all available from your fine podcast purveyors. And now back to Siobhan. So our final question for the episode is, if you could resurrect anybody and watch Good Omens with them and have a conversation about what they see on the screen. Who would you pick? Just to be clear, we're resurrecting in the back from the dead alive, not just taking their body to a doctor. That is correct. It would okay. be a short correct. conversation. Sure. <laughs> Mr. was involved. <laughs> but you can get some money. Like I, There I, is that. <laughs> hey, would it make a quick five pounds? Yeah, if, if, yeah, if, this is, if we're making money off of this, then I have to change my answer because I want a much fresher body. <laughs> no, no, this is not the make money option. <laughs> this, is the, this is the other option. 
<laughs> I would watch. I would resurrect Mikhail Bakunin and watch Good Omens because of the whole, you know, anarchism and this this conversation, this this stuff between Zarafel and Crowley about the poor and everything. I think I think Buchanan would have would have something. Bakunin, excuse me, would have something to say about it. The 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 Marxist uh, uh, anarchist um, philosopher, Russian anarchist philosopher. That's what I'm talking about. I like it. My answer is going to be the same answer I give anytime somebody asks who would I want to resurrect and have a discussion with. Yes, a taco. (laughs) (laughs) Any specific taco? Your first taco. (laughs) This is going to be my first non-taco response to the final question. Uh, No, anytime somebody asks me who would I want to have a conversation with if I could bring them back or anything to that extent, it's, it's always Carl Sagan. And I, I would absolutely love to watch Good Omens with Carl Sagan and have a discussion afterwards. That would that, be a yeah, hang. that would be a hang. And we that could have tacos while we did it. <laughs> well, of course. Resurrected tacos. There you go. There you go. I kind of follow in the same line. I tend to have the same answer every time this type of question so, comes can, up. Can, can I make a guess? Sure. Does it start with Bill? Yes, he is known by some people as Bill. Um, yeah, William Shakespeare and the ability to watch a story like this and talk about the story aspects with Shakespeare uh, that. Yeah. And, and we would probably also have to Shakespeare's have. version would have more dick jokes. Yes. <laughs> I don't, we made up for, for the lack of dick jokes in the show with dick jokes in our show. So but about the same amount of cross dressing. <laughs> I think Shakespeare would get hung up on the fact that he was a character in it and you would not get anything else out of him. Like you get to that point and that would just be the end of the whole conversation. <laughs> It, it's the Van Gogh episode of Doctor Who. I was thinking that very thing. Yes, like, they know me. They remember me. <laughs> I cut off my ear for nothing. Um, I'd have to say Terry Pratchett. I would love to hear what he would think about Best the direction answer. that Neil is Good taking answer. this, because they they already had a uh, an outline for a sequel. Uh, and I believe I heard something about, uh, you know, this is setting up to the point where the characters are at the point where the sequel story would begin. So this is sort of a prequel to the sequel. And uh, I'd, I'd love to hear what Terry Pratchett would Hey, Greg, good job making the rest of us look like assholes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the best answer so far. It's way better than what I came up with. I'd bring back Weemog. <laughs> Weemorag. 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 My answer was going to be Jane Austen, man. I want to hear about this jewel heist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>